When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Rise and shine, football fans. Start your day the right way with Morning Footy, a podcast that covers every aspect of the global game. Headlines, match previews, analysis, interviews, culture, fashion, and plenty of banter. Join as we track the thrills and spills of Europe's biggest title races, the business end of the Champions League season, a summer packed with international competitions, MLS, NWSL, and much more. Subscribe to Morning Footy. The Late Show Poncho with Stephen Colbert. Hey, welcome back, everybody. Ladies and gentlemen, my next guest tonight is a national correspondent for Time Magazine whose new book is called The Ones We've Been Waiting For. Well, wait no further. Please welcome Charlotte Alter. Now, the name of the book, we got it right here, as I said before, is The Ones We've Been Waiting For. And it's, uh, correct me if I'm wrong here, it's, it's about the leaders of the millennial generation that have emerged in our politics. Um, you've been covering you know, politics for Time magazine. You've written a bunch of covers. You're only 30 years old yourself. You know, you're one of those young people who's come to replace all of us oldies right now. Not you. Not no. me? No? No. no. Who made the cut of the ones we've been waiting for in the millennial generation? How did you choose the people who are in this book? So I was specifically looking for elected leaders, leaders who were born between 1981 and 1996. And is that, is that millennials? Yes, that's, okay. that's millennials. Um, whose lives had intersected in some fundamental way with the major historical events of that time. So I was looking for people who had served in the wars in Iraq and Afghanistan, or who had been impacted by the financial crisis, or who had experienced crushing student debt, or who had participated in Black Lives Matter or Occupy. Because the point of this book is to show how those forces have shaped the lives of the people who are going to be in charge in our future. And not just Democrats, but there's Democrats and Republicans in this book. Democrats and Republicans. I mean, millennials do lean to the left. They voted for Democrats by roughly two to one in the most recent midterms. But there are millennial Republicans, and this book includes three of them. What, what, is the, what title come from? What's that a reference to? So it comes from a 2008 speech by Barack Obama where he said, we are the ones we've been waiting for. And in a lot of ways, this book is about Obama's legacy. It's about how his presidency inspired the young people who helped make him president and how they're taking the lessons of his presidency into the future, including some of his shortcomings. Okay, if, if, but if millennials are so inspired by Barack Obama, then how come millennials don't vote more? It's a great question. In some ways, it's... <laughs> Thank you. They're applauding, they're applauding my question now. Yeah. Um, well, in some ways, Obama's presidency was almost a victim of its own success because he was so transformative for so many young people. And, and many millennials cast their first presidential vote for him. And so it set this standard of 
people not feeling like they really wanted to vote for somebody who they didn't truly love or truly believe in. And Obama maybe inadvertently made voting into something that you do out of love, not out of duty. And that's why it's really hard for many young people to kind of uh, get themselves excited about voting for someone they don't feel like really represents them. Okay, so that, that, that brings me to, say, like our debate last night, or, uh, for lack of a better word, Bernie. Because <laughs> young... There's a millennial here. Because young people, millennials, overwhelmingly, like 60% for Bernie... What, why do millennials like the altacocker? Why do they like the old guy? So this book explains why. Um, if you look at the events that have shaped their lives, and again, one of the things I found in reporting this book is that there's this myth that young people are always liberal and old people are always conservative, and it's just not true. In fact people shape their political attitudes in response to the events of early adulthood, like their late teens through their 20s. And if you look at the events that shaped millennials' early adulthood, it was crushing student debt, uh, the financial crisis, which really shaped a lot of their uh, ability to find jobs that would provide them with things like, I don't know, health insurance. That's why millennials are half as likely to have employer-sponsored health insurance as their parents, which might mean that they were really attracted to somebody who wants uh, something like Medicare for all. Millennials are uh, the millennials are one of the generations who know that they're going to have to deal with the impacts of climate change, which is why they seem to be really attracted to a candidate who is running on a Green New Deal. So if you look at all the uh, events that have shaped how millennials think about politics, it, it actually makes a lot of sense why they would be going for somebody like Bernie Sanders. You have a chapter here, your second chapter in the book uh, is called Harry Potter and the Spawn of the Boomers. <laughs> What's up with the millennials and Harry Potter? Because there's a lot of influence. There's a lot of influence. So I first started noticing the scope of this influence when I interviewed the Parkland kids after the shooting in Parkland, Florida, the, the March for Our Lives teenagers. Um, and I noticed that s many of them independently brought up Harry Potter and were comparing their quest to defeat the NRA mm -hmm. to Harry Potter and his friend's quest to, de to defeat Voldemort. And as soon as I started seeing it, I noticed it was everywhere. It's all over Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez's Instagram. Um, when uh, Mick Mulvaney took over the CFPB, there was a group of resistors inside the agency who called themselves Dumbledore's Army. Um, and you have to, in, in order to understand this, you know, you have to re realize that Harry Potter was an unprecedented cultural phenomenon. Literally unprecedented in human history. More people consumed Harry Potter in the time that it was being created than Dickens or Shakespeare or nearly any other great work of literature that you could possibly imagine. So it has fundamentally shaped how many of these young people see their role in the world and also see their responsibility in terms of what, what is good and what is evil. Uh, Harry Potter is a story about authoritarianism. It's a, it's a story about young people banding together to fight an authoritarian ruler who is enabled by feckless adults who don't want to stand up to him. And so, in some ways, it's really resonant to what we're seeing right now. Well, that story and this entire book gives me hope. So thank you for writing it. And I recommend... I recommend it highly. It's the ones we've been waiting for. It's Charlotte Alter. We'll be right back. Coming up, author Michael Eric Dyson.
Late Show Pod Show listeners can get 20% off on all Late Show with Stephen Colbert merchandise on ParamountShop.com. That's 20% off at checkout on all Late Show shirts, mugs, accessories, and more with code TLS20 at ParamountShop.com. Hey everyone, it's David Duchovny. Do you ever feel like a failure? Trust me, I get it. Hell, I've spent my whole life almost feeling like a failure. It's appropriate, though, because on Fail Better, my new podcast with Lemonada Media, exploring the world of failure, how it holds us back, propels us forward, and ultimately shapes our lives is the whole point. Each week, I'll chat with artists, athletes, actors, and experts about how our perceived failures have actually been our biggest catalysts for growth, revelation, and even healing. Through these conversations, I hope we can learn how to embrace the opportunity of failure and fail better together. Fail Better is out on May 7th, wherever you get your podcasts. My next guest is a professor of African-American studies at Vanderbilt University and the author of the new book, Entertaining Race, Performing Blackness in America. Please welcome back to The Late Show, Michael Eric Dyson. Now, sir. Yes, sir. Welcome back. Thank you, my man. The book is Entertaining Race, Performing Blackness in America. Right. Congratulations on it. Thank you, my friend. You, you say... Thank you. It's hefty. It's hefty. It's a big subject. It's, it's a big hefty. subject. You say that that entertaining race is a triple entendre. Right. What does that mean? Well, first of all, uh, it means that black people have been forced to entertain for the dominant society from the time of enslavement on, mm-hmm. on slave ships, on plantations, at the behest of slave owners. Secondly, that black people have had to entertain the ideal of race, to talk about it selling, um, you know, water on the street or lemonade or barbecuing in the park and being forced to be accountable for their presence in a way that is uh, unruly and yet demanded. So we've Mm -hmm. had to entertain the ideal of race constantly, even when we don't want to. And then thirdly, we've had to be entertaining about how we talk about race. There's a great subject. It's very complicated. It's got a lot of nuance and it's got a lot of controversy. So we have to find ways to uh, get beyond it through humor, through self-deprecation, through exploration to get to the, to the issues that are there. What do you mean performing blackness? It says performing blackness in America. How is blackness performed? In many ways. You know, you got one of the greatest performers over here in John Bautiste, you know, is a great performer. And the whole band. <laughs> and the whole band. And, and the entire band. And the thing is, is that performing blackness is both about professional entertainment, about singing and dancing, but it's also about thinking and engaging in a society that doesn't see you as necessarily equal. When you go to work every day, you've got to perform a sort of a kind of blackness. In spaces that are foreign to you as a black person, how do you make people feel comfortable? How do you get comfortable? How do you adjust yourself to them? And how do you bring the totality of your being into that experience without either savaging your ancestry but also honoring the traditions to which you speak. You, you put yourself on the cover there, I noticed. <laughs> okay. so I, it's, You weren't it's, available, so I had to do myself, <laughs> you know. Entertaining race. And are, you're on the cover. Are, do you see yourself as... Well, first of all, how do you define entertainer and are you an entertainer in a sense? I know you're an yeah. academic. I know right. you're a scholar. Right, right. Uh, you're a public philosopher in a way. Right. Is that also a form of entertainment? Absolutely. When you think about the word entertainment, enter, 
uh, and Tanir, right, to hold uh, together, to hold, uh, you know, intertwined ways, two different ideas. Is that really what the root of it is? Yes. It's about bringing people together? That's Absolutely. the idea? Absolutely, and bringing people together and to engage in a dialogue or a thinking about a particular subject. So, yeah, as a scholar, my students can't fall asleep. I got to go in there and say something that's interesting and engaging. I can say, well, you know, Foucault talked about the insurrection of subjugated knowledges. That's cool. But if I go in there and talk about, look, Jay-Z said, Mom, you know, God forgive me for my brash delivery, but I remember vividly what these trees did to me. That's an exemplification of what Foucault meant. In your new book, and this is where it's going to get controversial for us. Okay. Okay. In your new book, you say that Beyonce is, quote, without question, the greatest entertainer this globe has ever seen. Wow. Okay. I will, I will, I will, why Beyonce? And then on my response. <laughs> Well, I mean, think about it. Beyonce is an incredible singer. She's an incredible performer. She channels effortlessly the ancestral grace that has claimed her body, the magic of blackness that she constantly is, you know, putting forth. The pipes are incredible. The dancing on stage. Look, I saw Michael Jackson at his height, an extraordinary performer. Michael would do his thing. You know, and then he would, after, you know, two, three songs, go back, come back. She's performing two hours nonstop. She can sing, she can dance. Michael's vocal height was from, say, 10 to about 21. Beyonce's is now strong at 40 as it ever has been at 20. So when I think about the ways in which she channels uh, black ideas, when she channels American ideas, when she channels what it means to be a human being in context of harmony and melody, girl groups, channeling all of that beauty and power in one body and then making us rivet to her, be riveted by her performance, I think she's an extraordinary person. Okay. <laughs> I'm not going to fight you. <laughs> I'm not going to fight you. Right. Uh, I, there is no greater fan of Beyonce than, than yours truly. She's right. a dear friend and I hope to meet her someday. <laughs> Please come on the show. <laughs> Please come on the show. John, you guys in the band, do you have any opinions? Who's the greatest entertainer of all time over there? Yeah, yes. Yeah. I gotta go for Prince myself. Oh, Prince, all right. Prince. Defend yourself. Defend yourself. Uh, Prince was an extraordinary artist. Uh, I was on stage with Prince once. He said, I know Mr. Dyson can talk, but can he dance? I said, sir. You're talking to me? I got on stage and I danced, along with Cedric the Entertainer. I love Prince, an incredible genius he was, but when you put it all together, singing, dancing, composing, embodying lyrics, Beyonce is unchallenged. Anybody else got another one? What you got? What you got? What you got? I'll say what James you... Brown. James oh, Brown. James, look, <clears throat> James Brown was amazing. The fluidity of his movement, the, the, the way in which he was able to embody the black aesthetic, the drum became central, the percussive element. So on the one was the funk, he was amazing. The popper door was out of this world. But again, when you talk about the ability to sustain Gotcha, it gotcha, gotcha. Time, Anybody else? Hold on. Lampley. All right, Wildcard. I like Louis Armstrong. Oh, my. I see green trees bend. Look, Louis Armstrong was amazing. I mean, uh, transformational. His, transformational. Uh, chose what? January, J July 4th, 1900 to be born. He wasn't really born that day, but he chose that day because American democracy was blown through his trumpet. Here was a man of epic uh, you know, creativity who was able to articulate the blues sensibility of black people, but Beyonce. <laughs> We're good? He's able good. to do that. We're good. Duke Look, Ellington. I'm not going to... And, Andy, you got one? Duke Ellington. Duke Ellington. I mean, Duke, with that... He... 
with, with that piano before him, taking A train, he was able to compose the incredible vitality of black art. He was able to pull in Johnny Hodges on the saxophone. He was able to give a voice to many singers, including Sarah Vaughn, but, but Beyonce. <laughs> <laughs> now listen, I got two. I only got two responses. I only got yeah. two responses to this. And right. again, Beyonce, she's my Soul Cycle emergency contact. <laughs> We're super tight. Uh, does the word do the word Sammy Davis Jr. mean nothing in this town anymore? I mean, Sammy Davis Jr. was a genius from five years old with the Will Maston Trio. Here was a man Sing, working, dance, Sing, act, everything. He was capable of doing that. But when I put Beyonce next to Sammy Davis, okay, I think she's capable. Diana of Ross, Diana Ross. Is there anyone today? What? Is there anyone today with the impact of Diana Ross? Come on, my friend, I, Diana Ross. Uh, you know, Beyonce was fantastic in Dreamgirls. Yes. What a wonderful performance. You know who she's trying to play? <laughs> Diana Ross. Wait a minute. I have wait. I have no doubt. Diana Ross, Diana Ross, a 70... <laughs> Diana Ross at 75, extraordinary, exquisite, uh, fusing with Barry Gordy's Motown. I am from Detroit. Motown founded in 1959. Diana Ross claiming the sweet, noble tendencies of black femininity and articulating them in a postmodern space where urban conditions were deriving uh, and driving down black existence, but Beyonce. <laughs> Is able John, you to rise to even above that. Let's leave it with John. John, what you got? I'll give you Beyonce, the Coachella performance. She is one of my heroes. Yes. In, in eras, it's like basketball. There's greats of each era. Right. But in the next 20 years, I'm coming for all of them. Ah. is on sale now. Michael Eric Dyson. We'll be right back. Thank you for listening to The Late Show Pod Show with Stephen Colbert. Just one more thing. If you want to see more of me, come to The Late Show YouTube channel for more clips and exclusives. Grand Canyon University's RN to BSN online degree program makes earning your bachelor's in nursing possible. Balance online coursework with local in-person clinicals to position yourself for potential leadership opportunities in the time you have from wherever you are. Leaving room for what matters. Achieve your goals with your personalized plan and team behind you. Find your purpose at Grand Canyon University. Visit gcu.edu. John Stewart is back at The Daily Show, which means he's also back in our ears on The Daily Show Ears Edition podcast. Listen to The Daily Show Ears Edition wherever you get your podcast.